You know, it's interesting. I feel like I came in this morning with a greater level of self-awareness as to my actual need to be here, not just because I'm employed here and it's awkward if I just don't show, but, um, but because of my level of dependency on the Lord. You know, we gathered together this past Friday night, a group of friends, and we've just sort of sensed the need to pray more because there's just so much going on, and, uh, and so much good things are going on, and then so many challenges are going on, so many challenges in so many of your lives. And as we're driving there on Friday night, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm going through all of the different crises that I happen to be aware of at the moment, and I'm feeling, good grief, I am completely incapable of dealing with all of these things. And then somebody texts us about what happened in Paris, and we're like, holy cow, overwhelming, unbelievable. And what that does, I think, I mean, maybe it does the same thing for you. It creates a greater level of self-awareness, meaning awareness of the fact that, you know, the truth is all the time we are utterly and completely dependent upon God. Our feeling of control and our mastery of all things is an utter and complete and total illusion all of the time. It's just that every once in a while it becomes so overwhelming that you throw your hands up and go, yep, that's it, I can't do it. No, you can't ever do it. And moments like this, as hard as they are, are gracious and instructive. They point you back to the only one that, in fact, can do it. And they remind you of who He is, even as they remind you of who you are. And that's good for the soul. It's what we do every week on Sunday. We come in and work through that rhythm of grace. Who is God? Let's look at Him My goodness, who am I? Now let's be honest with him about myself. But let me not stop there. That's a place of panic. (laughs) Let me run to Jesus and rest in his grace and recognize that, my goodness, this is who I am in Christ and solely by his grace, not my efforts. Thank goodness. Because I can't do it. Only he can. And now what do we come to do? Having poured out our praise, we come to receive his instruction. And here's why. Because we need it. That's why. So as we continue our worship this morning by now coming to the Word of the Lord to do that, to receive His instruction, we come today to the very end of this Gospel of Luke that we have been studying now, and it's good that you're seated. Are you ready? For 51 straight weeks. And this is it. So if you're just joining us today, sorry, (laughs) but let me catch you up. Broad strokes. Practically speaking, since this is it in Luke, what this means is that by this point in the narrative, Jesus, who is God, through a supernatural conception, has clothed himself in our humanity and entered into this world as a man. And by this point in the narrative, he's lived out the whole of his life as a man. And what kind of a life was that? Because that speaks to this. It speaks to the fact that we can't do it, so therefore he did. He lived the kind of life that God, who is our creator, created every single one of us to live and that none of us have. And what kind of a life is that? It is a life of perfect worship and devotion and service to the Lord our God, the highest, the greatest good in all of the universe. Jesus did that. And by this point in the narrative too, that same Jesus, having completed that kind of life, has suffered and died, laying down his perfectly righteous and infinitely valuable life. And to what end? That he might cover over all the sin, all the shame, all the failures, all the guilt, all the stuff that you and I in our worship of ourselves and our, of our worship of other things 
have brought upon ourselves. And not only that, but most recently, this same Jesus who is God made man. Now hear that because it makes sense of what I'm about to say. On the morning of the third day, are you ready? Rose again from the dead, just like he said that he would. Now that sounds like the stuff of crazy people, unless you realize that, no, wait, if he's God, well, that's not crazy at all. If he's God, what kind of a life would you expect? A miraculous life. If he's God, the author of life itself, would you not expect that if he promised that he would rise from the dead on the morning of the third day, then in fact he would rise from the dead on the morning of the third day? Frankly, what would be surprising is if he didn't. Think about that. So by all of... By this point in the narrative, all of that has already occurred, and, you know, that raises the question of, well, then, good grief, what's left? So, what's left is this, and it's really important. We close the series with this question. What's left is, okay, what will be my response to all of that? What will be your response to all of that? And just to be clear on the front end of the message, the response that the whole of the Gospel of Luke and the whole of this little story at the end that we're going to look at today is calling me and calling you to do is, first of all, to bring our sin and ourselves, not one or the other, but both, to Jesus and to do it humbly, recognizing that, hey, you know what? I need to be delivered from both. I don't need to just be delivered from my sin. Clearly, I do, because I can't go back and undo all that stuff, and I can't cover it over with other good works. The standard is perfect obedience. So we're done. But in truth, I need to be delivered from me too. I need to be delivered from my selfishness. I need to be delivered from my foolishness. I need to be delivered from my tendency to be idolatrous. I need to be delivered from me. From the kind of life that left to myself, I will create for myself. And that, just like every other self-created life, will in the end be found empty. So, the response that the whole of this gospel and this little story at the end calls us to, first of all, is to give our sin and ourselves to Jesus. Both. And then secondly, having done that, It calls us then to use our lives and every aspect of our lives, not some little bit of our life that we shave off and feel comfortable with. No, it's to put our whole self and life at the disposal of Christ. It's to use our life and every aspect of our life to give witness to Him. And I would ask you, if the people of Jesus don't give witness to Him, who in the world is going to do it? You're the light of the world, He says. Let your light shine. So, with all that in mind, we pick up our study today in Luke 24, beginning in verse 36, where Luke says this. He says that as they, meaning as the disciples of Jesus, were talking about these things, I'm going to stop here because you might be, hey, I just joined you and it's part 51 guy, and I want to tell you what these things are that these guys are talking about. They're talking about what has happened on this very day on which we join them, which is the third day. It's the day of resurrection, and here's what they're talking about. They're talking about the fact that on the morning of the third day, instead of camping out at the tomb going, well, well, he's God, and clearly he's promised he's going to come forth from it alive. Can't wait for it to happen. Selling tickets and hot dogs. Instead, the women who, is, who are part of this group went to the tomb with burial spices to further embalm the dead body of Jesus. Why? Because they expected to find his body and find it dead. But what they found instead, and what these guys are talking about, is the fact that they got there, and the, the stone was rolled away, and they went in the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And then... They claim, and this is what they're discussing, 
that angels appeared to them and said things to them like, why are you here? Like, looking, what's with the spices? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's, he's not dead. He's risen just like he said that he would. And since he's God, it's not crazy. It actually kind of makes sense. So they're talking about that. They're talking about the fact that when Peter and John heard the report of the women who all ran to the disciples, Peter and John said, eh, you guys are nuts, but we are at least going to go look. So they went to the tomb and they, sure, they found the stone rolled away. They found the tomb empty, no angels, but there were these uniquely folded grave clothes, which really gave them some things to think about. Because, I mean, first of all, perhaps at least they were uniquely folded in a way that was unique to Jesus, whom they had spent 24-7 with for the last three years and knew how he folded things. The other part that's kind of curious about that is, if you were going to take the body somewhere, why in the world would you unwrap it? Does that make any sense? Like, we're going to, hey, you know what? Before we take the dead body, let's take the mummification stuff that keeps the smell in, and, you know, let's unwrap it and fold that up neatly. Why? So they're curious. They're talking about that. They're talking about the claims of Mary Magdalene who followed Peter and John back to that empty tomb and who after Peter and John left, even though she was one of those women who went to the tomb on that morning with the spices, saw the angels, at least allegedly, heard them say, well, no, 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 he's alive, he's not dead, he's risen, just like he said that he would. Okay, Mary follows Peter and John back to the tomb and then after they walk away, she remains crying weeping and asking this question, where have they laid his body? This is so true to humanity, is it not? Man, it is tough to get your mind around resurrection. It just, it is. And then Jesus appeared to her personally. And then, of course, most recently, these guys are talking about the fact that on this same day that we joined them now today, two of the disciples... Two of these guys, having heard the report of the women and of Peter and John and of Mary probably as well, got up and said, hey, you know what? This is a little too nuts for us. We're out like a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. It's been real and I got to go. And so the two of these guys together left and they walked seven miles to the town of Emmaus. But then from the perspective of these other guys who are discussing these things now in this moment that we join them, these guys came running back claiming that Jesus had appeared to them too. So they're all huddled together in a big room, closed doors, locked doors, trying to work this thing through. That's the picture. All right, so as the disciples of Jesus were talking about those things, Jesus himself, now get this, suddenly, unexpectedly, and out of nowhere, that's the way this happened, stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you, but instead of experiencing peace, these guys, it says, Luke says, were startled. I'm sure that they were. And frightened. I would guess that too. And they thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. Why? Well, because as we talked about two weeks ago, what we're dealing with in the resurrection of Jesus is a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Look, everyone agrees, Christians and non-Christians alike, that the tomb was empty, meaning his literal, physical body was gone. Grave clothes left behind. Why? Who knows? You know. Makes no sense apart from resurrection. And, and this might surprise you, as we talked about two weeks ago, the most reasonable explanation for the missing body of Jesus is, in fact, the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. Go back. Listen to the message and judge for yourself. It's part 49 of this series. 
So what we're dealing with, on the one hand, is a literally physically raised Jesus, and yet on the other hand, Jesus, in this literal physical body of his, is doing things that defies the laws of physics. Isn't he? I mean, he's doing things that I can't do with my body and you can't do with yours. And so, you know, this is just one more example of that. These guys huddled together in a room, doors closed, doors locked. Jesus is not there one moment, and then he's there. And he doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't knock, and then somebody walks to the door and says, who is it? And he says, Jesus, and they're like, oh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, like craziness is just like a virus today. What's going on? Now, do the secret knock. We'll let you in. He's like, no, he's not there. And then he is there. And you say, well, Tom, how do you explain that? I don't know. I can't explain that. I have no idea what the explanation for that is. But here's the deal. I don't feel the need to. I have no trouble with not explaining that. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is risen. It's not crazy since he's God. And God has come to me in his word and in in several places, I'll give you two in a moment, has said to me in essence, hey, Tom, here's the thing. There are going to be things about me that you don't understand. There are going to be things about my abilities that you just don't have a category for, like you can't comprehend. There are going to be things that I do in your life that you will not appreciate. And that's putting it mildly. You won't be able to explain. You won't be able to attach some kind of redemptive purpose to and go, well, of course, well, maybe God is... No, you'll just be completely mystified. And there will be things that I allow to happen in this world that you're not going to understand either. You're not capable of understanding it. You, Tom, do not have the capacity to get it. So when those things happen, and they will... All right, look, don't be surprised, first of all. And secondly, don't be discouraged. And so then, for example, God says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, it's a famous passage for a reason. He talks about his thoughts and ways, and then he talks about our thoughts and ways. And he's pointing something out to us that's very significant, and that is the difference. (laughs) And there is an enormous difference. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways declares the Lord. And here's the difference. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And here's what I did. I just journaled about that. For two reasons. I want to take that, and I want to get that into my heart. I want to interact with that as a follower of that God. And I want to show you how I interacted with it so that you can learn to do the same kinds of things and recognize in this statement that, all right, look, this doesn't just apply to me. So I just started writing. I said, Tom, and you can put your name in there if you'd like. Here's the message. You're finite. And I'm infinite. You are limited. And I am unlimited. And therefore, by your very nature, you are incapable of comprehending all of my thoughts and ways and words and abilities. And frankly, you cannot reasonably expect to be able to do that. So then, Tom, there will necessarily be things about me and about my abilities and about the way that I behave, both in this world and in your life, for which you have no explanation at all. You need to expect that. There will be things that happen both in this world and in your life 
that make no sense at all. And you need to anticipate that. And here, Tom, is what else you need to do. Tom, you need to get over yourself and to stop arrogantly assuming that I am as limited as you are and that just because you can't do something that I can't do it either or just because you can't make sense of something that I can't make sense of it either. In other words, Tom, you need to accept the fact that I am God and that you are not and that we are not equals in any respect. And what that means, practically speaking, is that all of these things about me or my abilities or about the way that I behave either in this world or in your life that you do not understand should not surprise you or discourage you, but instead they are things that you simply need to take and entrust to me. And Moses says essentially that. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, he says, the secret things. Do you hear that? They're secret things. Why are they secret? They're secreted away from me and from you. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We don't have the capacity to understand it or to get it. The secret things belong to who? To the Lord. But who is he? He's our God. But the things that are revealed, and where do we find them? We find them in his word. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And here's the point. What he has revealed to us in his word, he's given to us. They belong to us. They're our possession. And they teach us about him and about us and about life and about this world and all of these other things and among other things. They teach us who he is and who we aren't. The great gap between us in every sense. And oh, by the way, they teach us that, yeah, his ways are different. His thoughts are different. And there will be things that we don't understand that we can't explain, and that we need to just entrust to Him. Look, what He has revealed to us, what belongs to us already, what we do understand, ought to allow us to trust Him with what we don't. So, as the disciples of Jesus were talking about the empty tomb and about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances and whatnot, Jesus Himself suddenly, unexpectedly, and out of nowhere stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But again, instead of experiencing peace, Luke says that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost because Jesus in his literal physical body was doing things that you and I can't do in our literal physical bodies. We don't have a category for what just happened, Jesus. So we're a little befuddled. And so then Jesus said to them, why are your hearts troubled and why do what? Doubts arise in your hearts. And then what does he do? He chastises them. He says, you know what? I can't believe it. I spent three years with you guys. I walked on water. Okay, I called out to the wind and the waves, pause for effect, and they obeyed me. The blind see, the mute speak, the deaf hear, the dead raised, the paralyzed guys getting up, taking up their mat, and walking away fully restored, no rehab. You saw all of this stuff. And I promised you that I would rise again from the dead on the third day, having first suffered and died on a cross. What part of this is not computing for you people? Why in the world? How can you possibly doubt me? You know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go find some people with some sense. What does he do for them in their doubt and for me and mine and you and yours? And don't pretend like you don't have it. He pursues them. Good grief on the day of his resurrection when they should have been camping out and selling tickets and hot dogs and waiting for him to come forth. On the day he spends that whole day chasing them down, appearing to them, comforting to them, saying, hey, come on, look, it's really me, which is what he now does. 
He does it again. So Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see clearly that I have. And when he had said this, he then showed them his hands and feet. And while they still, what? Disbelieved, but this time for joy and were marveling. And I think what that means is while they're standing there taking this whole thing in, again, no category for this. People don't come back from the grave. It's weird. They're thinking to themselves, man, this is awesome, but it's a little too awesome, like it's too good to be true. I think that's the category of their disbelief. While they still disbelieved, but for joy and were marveling, Jesus said to them, all right, okay, a little bit more proof. He says, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. But here's what he didn't do. He didn't stop to explain any of it to them. In other words, he doesn't stop and go, all right, now I know my appearing and disappearing has caused a bit of a stir. I've physically proven now that I'm here. I mean, you can poke me and prod me and put your finger in my nail holes if you'd like to do that. No worries. So now let me explain all of the physical and biological and chemical processes by which I do what you don't understand. He doesn't do that. Why? They don't have the ability to understand. I don't have the ability to understand. It's beyond them, you see, and it's beyond me, it's beyond you. Sorry, I'm going to speak for you. It is. It's beyond us. It's part of the secret things that belong to who? Because I'm not him. They belong to the Lord, and who is he? He is our God. That's it. It is a beautiful magic that is so beautiful that it's beyond our ability to comprehend it. And I use that phrase intentionally. I'm not implying that Jesus is a magician. But what he does is magical in some sense, is it not? It's amazing. I want you to think about all the magical worlds that have been created by the minds of men and women that are incredible. They're delightful. They're enchanting. The wizarding world of Harry Potter. Listen, sorry, I've read all the books. I've watched all the movies. I can quote them line and by line, really. And I love them for the record. They're amazing. It's this delightful and incredible world that she's created with her imagination. Her imagination has given birth to a world. What about Middle Earth and J.R.R. Tolkien? That's a little more acceptable for Christians, right? We can read that because we know he was a believer. The gospel is all over Harry Potter for the record. All over Harry Potter. All over it. But what about that, Middle Earth? You like the movies? I love the movies. I can do a movie marathon on The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings again and again and again. My wife walks in the room time and again. She's like, oh my goodness, you're watching this again? I'm like, yeah. It just draws me in. What about C.S. Lewis and Narnia? Magical, amazing worlds. Now, what's been revealed to us about our God? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. We're told. It's revealed to us. It's part of what belongs to us, what the Lord has in store for us in a new heaven, in a new earth, in a new world. Who is this God that we worship? He is the God who does what? Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything that we can ask or what's the next word? Say it. Okay, come on. Really? Imagine. It's beyond our imagination, way beyond our capacities 
What else are we told? We're told that we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth in resurrected bodies like unto the body of Jesus, for we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now, hang on a second, because there are some implications to that. I'm thinking maybe we'll be able to appear and disappear and do all kinds of things. Look, if these human beings, admittedly brilliant, are able to create worlds that are expressive of their imagination and that take us in and delight our souls, how much more will be the world that is the expression of the imagination, the infinite imagination of the Lord our God who has created us to delight more than anything else in Him? Stunning. It's remarkable. And for forever, we will worship him for it in ever-increasing amounts because it's infinite. It never ends. I mean, just when you get thinking, wow, it can't get any better than this. Oh, yes, it can. And we will worship him because there will be secret things. Things that we don't have categories for and yet enjoy. There are secret things that we don't have categories for in this life too. We don't have a category for what happened in Paris. We don't have a category for what's happening in other places. We don't have categories for things that happen in our lives. Disappointments we never saw coming, tragedies that we didn't plan for. Things don't work out for us the way that we planned them. They do work out the way that he planned them, and that can be offensive because we take issue with the ways that he's planned them. Now, wait a minute. Who am I and who is he? And has he not said to me, Look, there are secret things, and you will not understand them, but you will trust me with them. That's worship. So Jesus does the appearing and disappearing act with these guys, and he doesn't stop to explain it to them, but instead what he does is he takes them to the Word of God. And why? Because the Word of God belongs to us. It's that which has been revealed. And so he said, look, you can touch my hands and all that stuff, and here's the deal. Let me take you to the Scriptures and prove to you that I would be born, live, suffer, die, and be raised. Luke says in verse 44, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is just Jesus' way of saying in the Old Testament, must, must be fulfilled. And then just as he had done earlier this same day with those two disciples who tapped out and left for Emmaus, Jesus did with all of these guys now. It says that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And then what? On the third day, on this very day that I'm with you right now in, guys, he's saying, rise from the dead or to put it differently. He revealed to them from the Old Testament how the Christ is God who through a supernatural conception clothed himself in our humanity, was born into this world as a man and then as a man for mankind to live the life that we have not and suffered and died in our place, laying down his infinitely valuable, infinitely righteous life to fully pay the penalty for all of our failures and sins, past, present, and future. And then he showed them how he would rise from the dead on the morning of the third day, which sounds like the stuff of crazy people, unless in fact he's God and he is. And so Jesus takes them to the scriptures which belong to us, and he says again, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, and on the third day rise from the dead. And then what he says next calls for a response. And that's really all that's left. How do I respond to this? Well, Jesus tells us, 
He goes on, he says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to whom? To all nations, meaning to every different kind of person, beginning from Jerusalem, but then emanating out throughout the entire geography of the earth and across every age of man, meaning it emanates from Jerusalem to me and to you, from them to us. It's the offer to us. It's the call to us. The call to us is, first of all, bring our sin and selves to Jesus and humbly lay it both down and go, you know what, I need to be delivered from both. But then having done that, this calls us to use our lives and every aspect of our lives to give witness to Jesus. For Jesus then says, and you, meaning those guys back then for sure, but meaning everybody who believes in Jesus here also, you are what? Because it's a very important word. You are witnesses of these things. And again, as I said earlier, if we don't give witness to these things, well, good grief, who will? Who's going to do that? And I think it's worth noting that the Greek word from which we get the word witness here is the word martyros. Do you hear anything in that? Because we also get the word martyr from this word. And I think that too is instructive. And here's why. Because martyrs don't just give a little bit of their life to their cause. They don't just cut off a little bit that they're comfortable with and say, yeah, I think that this won't really disrupt my flow here. I'll just give this. Here, Lord, you know, I've got this arthritic finger. I'll just, I'll give it to you. It's a win-win. Martyrs don't just give a little bit of their life to their cause. They put it all in. They give everything. The whole thing is at the disposal of the cause. And here's why. Because the cause is worthy of the whole thing. And certainly, guys, that was true for these men having this encounter with Christ. Every one of them sacrificed relationships with family and with friends for preaching a risen Jesus. This Jesus, every one of them, every one of them lost businesses and wealth and suffered poverty because of their testimony, their witness to this Jesus that we're talking about, every one of them cast aside their reputations, became pariahs in their world. They were hunted, literally, by Jew and Gentile alike for preaching this Jesus. Every one of them suffered hardships, persecutions, torturing of all kinds, and all but one of them suffered a horrific death for preaching this Christ of whom we now are discussing. Let me give you a list. James, the brother of John, he was the first to go. He was beheaded in Jerusalem. And all the other guys knew he was beheaded. And guess what they kept doing? (laughs) They just kept preaching. They kept sharing. They kept living for Christ. Philip was crucified in Phrygia. Matthew died from the thrust of a spear in a place called Nod Abah. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down. So there's a distinction In Rome, Bartholomew was savagely beaten and then crucified in India. Thomas was run through by spears and then thrown into a furnace also in India. And by the way, as these guys were being knocked off one after the next, 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 what do you think that the first century church, the people of God in that day were thinking? Because I think it went something like this. Dear Lord, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? This is crazy. This makes no sense at all. Here you go, taking the most preeminent leaders, your most beloved apostles, the guys we need most to get this fledgling thing called Christianity up and off the ground, the guys that spent three years with you, who personally saw you raised from the dead, murdered one after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. My goodness, you are the almighty God. You control all things and this is happening? Isn't that what you would have thought? Like every time you pick up the newspaper, another one of them is dead. 
Oh, Peter died yesterday, crucified upside down. I think it makes a lot of sense now. I think that God allowed this to happen, caused it. Let's put that word on it. At least in part, so that 2,000 years later, we could gather in a place like this and confidently believe the record of the life, birth, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of this Jesus that they have left behind for us in the New Testament and written with their blood. My goodness, why would anyone, much less a whole group of people, without one of them recanting, suffer all of this stuff and willingly become the first martyrs for something that they made up and knew to be a lie? It makes absolutely no sense at all. And so Jesus says to them, and he says to us, you are witnesses of these things. It's a responsibility to that. You've been entrusted with this. And now, because I know you're not strong enough to be my witnesses in your own strength. Yeah, we got that figured out, Lord. Behold, he says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, which the other scriptures make clear is the Holy Spirit. So stay in the city and wait for the Holy Spirit is the idea. Stay in the city of Jerusalem, he says, until you are clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you is the point from on high. And then Luke tells us in the book of Acts, the companion volume to this book of Luke, That after 40 days in which Jesus appeared several more times to these guys and to as many as 500 people at one time, he then led them out as far as Bethany, a couple of miles from Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple that had crucified Christ, by the way, only about six weeks earlier, blessing God and witnessing to Jesus, knowing that inevitably it would cost them their lives. And that's the end of the book. So what's left? Your response and mine. Let me ask you, have you given your sin and yourself to Jesus and recognized that in truth you really do need to be delivered from both? And if you haven't done that, then then why is it that you haven't done that? Is it because that God has not made himself explainable yet to you? Something we all suffer with. Lord, you know what? If I could just make sense of what you're doing in this world, if I could just make sense of what you're doing in my life, if if you would just condescend to make the infinite known utterly and completely to my finite mind. Oh, wait, that wouldn't work. I can't do the math. You can't do the math. When you consider who God is and when you consider who you are and who I am in the math, yeah, we just, no, we don't have, we can't compute. It's unreasonable even to ask for that. If you haven't given your sin and self to Jesus, is it because that you think that you can create a better, more fulfilling, more satisfying, more purposeful, more joyful life for yourself than your Creator who created you to delight in Him more than anything else can create for you? Because again, when you consider that in light of who God is and in light of who you and I are, Yeah, I mean, that that doesn't really work either. Okay, so then is it because you don't believe the bloodstained parchments of the New Testament written to you in the blood of the apostles? Is that it? That doesn't make sense either. So have you given your sin and self to Jesus? And if not, then why not? And then, if you have, 
How are you using your life and every aspect of it to give witness to him? Because martyrs don't just give a little bit of their life to their cause. Hey, I think I can afford this. No, they give it all. Even if it takes it all. They give it all. How could they not? That's the idea. And look, if we don't give witness to him, then who else will? So chew on that. And see what the Lord says to you about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the men and women who have gone before us in the faith, and particularly for the apostles. God, we thank you for the work of grace that you did in their lives and for the testimony that you have preserved through their lives that comes to us faithful, for it is written in their blood. Thank you for raising them up. Thank you for humbling them. Thank you for sticking with them when you could have rightly forsaken them. Thank you, Lord, for sticking with us. For we too, again and again, in all of our doubts, in all of our self-worship, well, we would be easy to forsake. Thank you that your faithfulness far exceeds any faithfulness that we can comprehend. We do not have a category for that. We can't do the math on that. Yet that doesn't seem to bother us. That is wonderful. Lord, and we embrace it. A mercy that betrays a heart of love that far exceeds our ability to comprehend. We thank you. And Lord, now we pray that your spirit would meet with us, even as we close out this sermon, coming to your table and this service, and that he would convict us of our sin, but not leave us there, but rush in with the blood of this Savior to make us clean and with the wisdom of this Savior to make us wise. Make us humble, O God, that we might bring to you our sin and ourselves and reappraise what we're living for in light of the greatest cause in all the universe and the only one worthy of the whole of our lives. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.